Play ball. Round the internet we go, where we end up no one knows. Sit back and enjoy the show, down the baseball rabbit hole, down the baseball rabbit hole. Hey, welcome to the baseball rabbit hole. The show where I ask a baseball question of the internet and follow the rabbit holes that open up. I'm your host, Michael Cotton, and today we are talking about the baseball, not the game, the actual ball. As with all podcasts, you may be listening to this in the future, sometime where the major leagues have actually settled on a ball design and stuck with it instead of having dead balls, live balls, and Goldilocks balls. Seriously, folks, in the Gregorian calendar year of 2022, after almost 150 years of Major League Baseball, we have a ball they are calling Goldilocks because it is just right, meaning the other two balls they used this year are not right. If you've been listening to these shows in order, you know that I brought up the idea that some people think that Aaron Judge's 62 home runs this season should be considered the MLB record because he hasn't been caught cheating. Well, he still hasn't cheated, but there seems to be evidence that the Yankees had more of these Goldilocks balls than some of the other teams, which calls the record into question. Again. But that's not what I am going to talk about. Since there seems to be so many different balls in use, I want to know what goes into a baseball. As with research for all things, it's best to just start at the beginning. Prior to the 1850s, balls were like craft projects. Ball players just made them on their own. Of course, this meant that the balls were various sizes and made from random materials. The basic idea early on was to wrap a bouncy core with yarn and cover it with leather if you had it. Cobblers got into the business fairly early because they had rubber and leather left over from making shoes. While the balls were fairly random, a style called the lemon peel ball emerged as the favorite early on. They were called lemon peel balls because they weren't exactly round and they sort of looked like they could have been peeled open like a lemon. Um, they kind of came to a, a bit of a point on one end where all the stitches came together in an X and coming off that X were four straight lines of stitches going down the sides of the ball. Those stitches ended sort of three-fourths of the way down the ball because the sides were actually one piece of leather cut into a cross and then folded up and sewn that way so you can see why there isn't an exactly round ball um, there was an x on one side there was no x on the other side and there were stitches on three sides look this is not an easy thing for me to explain and i'm sure it's even harder for you to understand just from this description but if you just search lemon peel baseball on the internet you can see what they look like. In fact, you can buy new lemon peel baseballs. Uh, I mean, if you are looking for a gift for that hard to get person, maybe they love baseball, it would be kind of neat to have around. Uh, but I honestly don't know how great they would be to try and play baseball with. It's more of just a neat thing, I guess, whatever. 
Anyway, the balls were generally about six inches round and were lighter, softier, and bouncier than the balls used today. They needed to be softer because nobody had gloves and it was legal to peg a runner with a throw to get him out. Because they were livelier and people didn't have gloves, early games could have some pretty high scores because the ball was literally just going all over the place. Also, because they were made of shoe leather, they weren't white. They were generally some shade of brown, like a shoe, right? I mean, it's shoe leather, it's a brown shoe. Of course, this is all prehistory in a sense. By the 1850s, leagues in New York started to standardize the ball, sort of. I mean, if by standard, you mean the ball could be anywhere from eight and 11 inches in circumference, as long as it was between five and a half and six ounces, then sure, standardized. Now think about that for a minute. You could have an 11 inch ball that weighs the same as an eight inch ball, and both of them were legal. The balls also had way less bounce. I mean, even the eight inch ball was deader than the old six inch lemon peel variety. And this probably doesn't make sense out of context, but I can't imagine the 11 incher was getting anyone excited. Most of the balls of the time were still of that uh, lemon peel style, but not all of them. I mean, there was no rule about what style the ball had to be in when you made it. Again, these were kind of like craft projects. They were still being made by hand by the people who were going to use them. Home teams were in charge of the ball. So they used the balls that benefited their team the most. If they had sluggers, they used the smaller eight inch style ball because you had to wind the ball tighter to get that smaller size. This made for a livelier ball. If the visiting team had sluggers, they used the 11 inch ball that wasn't great for hitting. The ball changed in the late 1850s from the lemon peel ball to the two piece infinity ball that is more like the one we use now. It can be called the figure eight or as I call it, the infinity ball because it's two pieces of leather that sort of have that infinity shape to it and they're sewn together. It's basically the same style as they use now. And now I'm down a mini rabbit hole. The inventor of the infinity cover was either John Walcott or William Culler. Both men were shoemakers in Natick, Massachusetts and were making their own baseballs. There is a debate over which one truly invented the two-piece leather design that we all know today, but the one fact we know is that William Culler was the one who sold his design and made some money. William Harwood, another Natick shoemaker, bought the design and built the first factory dedicated to making baseballs, which allowed people to purchase baseballs instead of making them for themselves. The balls were still completely made by hand. The word manufacturing in this sense is literally just a bunch of people, a lot of women, seamstresses, working with leather and doing the whole process themselves. So you can imagine that while the balls are becoming much more standard at this time, each individual person could have a little bit different ball based on how good they were at threading or winding and all of the stuff that they do to make the actual baseball. The more expensive balls were made with horsehide leather covers, and the cheaper ones were covered in sheepskin. Harwood sold balls all over the United States and Canada and made a killing, 
racking up $150,000 in profit in year one. That would equate to clearing over $5 million in today's money. Pretty good for a startup business, I think. Mass production led to more standardization, as I said before, and because Harwood & Sons was using this infinity cover design, the lemon peel ball fell out of fashion. I had actually never heard of Harwood & Sons, but they actually continued making baseballs for three generations and didn't close down until 1976, the year I was born. So I guess that's why I never heard of them. Okay, let's get out of this detour and back to the baseball. By the time Major League Baseball truly began in 1876, a rule for the size of a baseball had been created. The ball was to be between 9 and 9.25 inches in circumference and between 5 and 5.25 ounces. It was to be made of a small core of cork, rubber, or similar material tightly wound with yarn and covered with horsehide or cowhide. As of 2019, I couldn't find a more current rule book online unless I wanted to purchase one, which, come on people, I'm not making any money on this podcast, so I just went with the 2019 version. The rules for the size and materials of the ball had never changed. What? In almost 140 years, in a sport where there are two distinct eras, called the dead ball and the live ball era, the rules have not changed? How is that possible? Baseballs are obviously being made differently now, and with different materials, than they were in the 1870s, even though the rule hasn't changed. So what is up with no changes in the rules for 140 years? Well, we will look at the evolution of the modern baseball after this break. Hey, this is a part of the show where I would normally tell you, go to my Patreon and support the show. But here's the thing. I screwed up the Patreon one time, so I went back to do it again. And when I was doing it, I thought to myself, I really shouldn't be doing a Patreon because I don't put these shows out very often. And it really just doesn't seem to make sense. So, if you really want to support the show monetarily, hit me up on PayPal or Venmo at mcotton2019. That's the same for both of them. And you can give me money there if you'd like. Otherwise, if you really want to do something Patreon style, go to Patreon for Sunranto. S-O-N-R-A-N-T-O. And that's where I do my other podcast. You can give money there and that would also support what I do. Thank you. Now back down the rabbit hole. While 1876 marked the beginning of Major League Baseball as we know it, it also marked the end of a career for one of the most famous names in baseball. Although Harwood and Sons were the first to mass-produce baseballs, some people still made their own baseballs, even on the highest level. One of these guys was A.G. Spalding, a pitcher for the Boston Red Stockings from 1871 to 1875, and the Chicago White Stockings from 1876 to 1878. Spalding won 241 games out of the 301 games he started over seven seasons, which means he won almost five out of every six starts. I'm sure he was an amazing pitcher, but he was also making his own balls to throw, 
and maybe that had something to do with it as well. Now, I'm sure you recognize the name Spalding, because along with his brother, he created the Spalding Sporting Goods Empire. Spalding was also a part owner of the White Stockings and helped create the National League in 1876. This insider position allowed him to get the National League to adopt the Spalding Baseball as their official baseball, a partnership that lasted a hundred years. And before we get back to talking about the actual ball, I have to go down an offshoot of this rabbit hole that I found very interesting. There was a competitor to the Spalding Baseball from the A.J. Reachin Company, Athletic Company. A.J. Reachin Company was manufacturing very high-quality baseballs that were being used by other leagues across the U.S. In 1889, A.G. Spalding and Brothers purchased the retail location of A.J. Reachin Company in Philadelphia. What looked to be a simple retail store purchase was apparently much more. Spalding and Reach had actually negotiated a much more comprehensive deal that included the Reach Sporting Goods manufacturing as well as that retail store. In order to skirt the monopoly laws, the details of the deal were kept secret for decades. Spalding owned both companies, but Reach was still the figurehead for his business. All the balls and other equipment were manufactured in the same places, but with different names. Thus, when the American League began using the Reach Baseball in 1899, as they were preparing to become a new major league, it was basically the same ball as they were using in the National League. The most notable difference was that in the NL, the ball said Spalding and had red and black stitching, while the AL ball said Reach and had red and blue stitching. I have to say, I really wish they would go back to two-color stitching on baseballs, because it looks amazing. Unfortunately, this is a podcast, so you are going to have to take my word for it. Or, I mean, you have the internet, you can just look up the pictures for yourselves. The two leagues used, quote-unquote, different brands of baseballs until 1975, even though Spalding officially purchased A.J. Reaching Company in 1934. And when I say officially purchased the company, it was sort of more that the secret of their deal had been found out and they kind of had to make it official. So 1934 was the year that baseballs got rid of the different colored stitching and just went to straight red stitching. So after that, the only real difference in the baseballs between the American League and the National League was that one had a reach stamp and one had a Spalding stamp. Okay, let's get out of this rabbit hole detour, and we're going to go back to the baseball. I'm telling you, people, this story, I thought it was going to be, as I think all of them are, an easy rabbit hole, and it just takes me everywhere. As I alluded to earlier, the balls A.G. Spalding made himself and was using may have been part of the reason that he was so successful as a pitcher. When Spalding Sporting Goods began mass-producing them, they were made in much the same way as he had made them himself. The ball was made with a rubber center, hand-wrapped with yarn, and had the infinity leather design, which was hand-sewn around the yarn ball. Most importantly for a pitcher, it was soft. Not soft like a stuffed animal or anything, but definitely softer and looser than the baseball is today. 
This led to weaker hits as the ball would not jump off the bat like a firmer ball might. To make things harder on hitters, unless the ball got lost out of play somehow and not returned, they did not change out the ball. As the game progressed, the ball actually became softer the more it was hit. This was the deadest of the dead ball era. And this did not change until 1910, when the cork center ball was introduced. It was the first major innovation since the infinity cover. The cork center was firmer than the rubber and did not break down as easily. This meant that the ball maintained its firmness and integrity longer. When it was first introduced in the AL, it gave hitters a new advantage and the league average actually jumped 30 points from 243 to 273. A year later, when the National League began using the ball, their batting averages jumped from 256 up to 272. This advantage only lasted a couple years though. They were still using one ball for the whole game and pitchers began to use the scuff marks on the ball to their advantage and by 1914, offense had returned to its dead ball status. The next true innovation in baseball manufacturing was the machine-wound ball in 1920. As I said before, since baseballs were started to be mass-produced, they were still all made by humans. Humans only have a certain ability to wrap things, like a certain tightness, and of course, different humans have different abilities in wrapping things, so they weren't all the same and they weren't nearly as tight as when machines began wrapping the yarn. Once machines were introduced into the process, the balls became much more consistent and they became much more tightly wrapped. There were conspiracy theories that the league had introduced what people called a jackrabbit ball that was different than what they had used before, but examinations of the ball and the components that made it showed that everything was the same. The only difference was that a machine could now wind the ball. This very tightly wound ball became the live ball. All players in Major League Baseball benefited from this new ball, but the one who benefited the most was Babe Ruth, who had hit 29 home runs in 1919, even though it was still technically the dead ball. In 1920, that jumped to 54, and then in 21, 59. Three new records in three seasons. I'm positive this new tightly wound ball had plenty to do with the new power surge, but it wasn't only that. If it had only been the ball changing, I think pitchers would have adjusted yet again. This time though, the machine wound ball coincided with changes in the rules outlawing foreign substances on the ball, like spit, and requiring that baseballs be changed out whenever the ball got dirty and scuffed. This rule came about after the death of Ray Chapman, who had been hit in the head and killed while batting in 1920. It was thought that the darkened ball that had been used all game hit him because he could not see it well enough or early enough to get out of the way. So now the balls were more tightly wound, pitchers were not supposed to doctor the ball, and old balls were removed before they had a chance to soften. This was the true end of the dead ball era. In 1925, 
the ball got even livelier when Milton B. Reach of the A.J. Reach and Company patented the cushioned cork baseball. He took the current cork center of the ball, covered it in partially vulcanized black rubber, and then covered that in red rubber. Then the cork rubber rubber center was wound tightly in yarn. As soon as it was introduced, Babe Ruth went seven straight seasons hitting 40-plus homers, including the 1927 single-season record 60. Now, before you go equating that with sort of the Aaron Judge situation where he may have been benefited by this special Goldilocks ball, let me remind you that the ball that Babe Ruth used continued to be used, and nobody came close to that 60 homer record until Roger Maris, but he had eight extra games in which to do it. That being said, you might have a little bit of an argument because, as you recall, the American League was using the Reach Baseball, even though they were made in the same manufacturing or whatever. It was noted that the American League did prefer a livelier ball than the National League did, so... I don't know, maybe there was a little something to that. But again, for the rest of history, nobody's really even coming close to that 60 home runs again until, of course, they introduced steroids. But we're not going to get into that. Anyway, the American League ball might have been a little bit livelier than the National League ball at the time. That definitely changed in 1934 because at that time, the American League and National League actually agreed upon one standard baseball. There could be no real distinction between the balls other than the stamps that were on them. Everything else was standardized right down to only using red stitches on the baseballs, which apparently, even to this day, are hand-sewn. It's kind of not really a surprise that 1934 is the year that that happened, and it was also the same year that People found out about the Spalding Reach sort of situation, and Spalding had to officially buy Reach. Now everybody knew the balls were being made in the same place, so I guess maybe that's why they said let's do it at that time. I'm not really sure, but basically, now the cat was out of the bag, the balls were all being made in the same place, and now the balls were supposed to be identical. That being said, the brand stamps remain different in the NL and AL until 1976 when the Reach stamp was finally retired and both leagues used Spalding stamped baseballs. Despite the logo changing, the balls were still slightly different in that they were stamped either American League or National League for use in their respective leagues. The following year, 1977, Rawlings took over as the official baseball of the major leagues and that is the perfect spot to take a quick break. Hey everybody, you know what this podcast needs? More listeners like you. If you want to help me out, please share this podcast around to your friends and let them all know that they should subscribe as well. Another way to support the podcast would be to give me a five-star rating somewhere on the internet wherever podcasts are rated. Thanks, and now back down the rabbit hole. In 1977, Rawlings won the rights to produce all Major League Baseballs, 
just as they had been doing since 1955. Wait, what? So here's the thing. I never really know where a rabbit hole is going and I'm always surprised by something. Well, this is the point in my research that I became surprised. So if you are wondering what I'm talking about when I said Rawlings has been making the ball since 1955, that is true because that was the year that Spalding bought Rawlings and took over their manufacturing, much like they'd done back in the day with Reach. Come on, I guess these guys never really learn. Or, like major corporations, they never really get punished, so they may as well try the same thing over and over and over again. Spalding took over the Rawlings company so they could use the Rawlings manufacturing capabilities. Once again, Rawlings retained its name and Spalding, quote unquote, hired Rawlings to manufacture baseballs in order to circumvent the monopoly laws. Rawlings and Spalding were technically two different companies, even though Spalding basically owned everything. So Rawlings really did start making Major League Baseballs in 1955. They were just making them with the Spalding and Reach logos on them. And Rawlings was technically not the manufacturer of the balls. This changed in 1968 due to an antitrust investigation that forced Spalding to sell the Rawlings company. Despite the sale of the company, Spalding continued to have Rawlings manufacture the baseballs with their logos on them. I mean, this still kind of sounds fishy to me, but Spalding had an exclusive naming rights to MLB baseballs until after the 1976 season so it was probably the only way to keep providing the balls since Rawlings was actually the manufacturer. And Spalding, after selling Rawlings, really didn't have the capabilities to produce those balls. When Spalding's naming rights ran out after the 1976 season, Rawlings took over as the supplier of baseballs to MLB and could finally put their name on the ball, even though they'd actually been producing the balls for 21 years prior to that. Rawlings became only the second company to produce Major League Baseballs and the third company name used. Balls continued to be marked American League and National League for the next 24 years. In the year 2000, Major League Baseball officially eliminated different presidents for the different leagues and put the baseball commissioner in charge of the whole thing. And that was none other than baseball rabbit hole recurring villain, Bud Selig. One of the first things he did was to get rid of the league designation on the balls. Since the 2000 season, all the balls have simply said Major League Baseball on them. Since 2000, the Rawlings company has changed hands three times. The most recent purchase of the company in 2018 by the Seidler Equity Partners and, here's the reason that I'm bringing this up, Major League Baseball. For the first time in history, the league actually owned the company that manufactured the balls it used, instead of using a third-party company. On the surface, that may seem like a good thing, but it's not. You see, once MLB became an owner of the manufacturing company, strange things have been happening with the ball. 
Almost as soon as MLB took over an ownership of Rawlings, the baseball started flying out of ballparks. In 2019, there was a power surge across the league. National League hitters crushed home runs in 4.16% of every at-bat that season. The AL hit homers in 3.97% of their at-bats. It is the only time in the history of the game that either league even came close to breaking the 4% mark. And this time it was so much that the average of the two leagues was over 4%. For perspective, in 2019, the leagues together hit home runs in 4.09% of the at-bats. The most recent record had been in 2017, and that was 3.69. So that 0.4% jump was nice. Okay, we're going to come back to what caused this spike in home run efficiency in a moment. But this rabbit hole has another detour. Before 1921, the start of the live ball era, neither league had ever hit homers in even 1% of their at-bats. From 1921 onward, there was only one season, the 1924 National League, in which either league had hit homers in less than 1% of their at-bats, and the league as a whole has never dropped below 1% of the at-bats turning into homers. Until 1993, there were only two seasons in which one of the leagues had ever broken even 3% of at-bats becoming home runs. The AL did it in 1955, and the NL did it in 1987. The AL and NL combined broke 3% for the first time ever in 1987. Since 1993, the total league average has broken the 3% homer rate in 19 of the last 29 seasons. 1994 through 2006, the average of the entire league hit 3% homers 11 times, and less than 3% only twice. You may recall this as the steroid era. In 2006, Major League Baseball announced that it was going to start investigating steroids. And what do you know, in the nine seasons directly following the steroid era, 2007 to 2015, MLB broke the 3% homer mark only one time. Starting in 2016, the league has never been below 3%. The five seasons that MLB has owned the baseball manufacturing have all been in the top 10 homerific seasons ever. So now that I've thrown a bunch of numbers at you and a bunch of dates and talked about the steroid era, which I said I wasn't going to talk about, what does this all mean? What it means is that the MLB-owned Rawlings baseball has made it even easier for players to hit home runs than steroids did. This surprised me. I knew the baseball was more lively, but I did not realize it was better than steroids. It also means that MLB has the means to alter the baseball and that they are doing it. That might not be so bad, but they don't seem to want anyone to know what they are doing or how they are doing it for some reason. Also, they don't tell the players when they're changing it, which you would think they would want to know. As I said before, 
The Aaron Judge home run record is now a bit messy because it has come out that MLB used three different baseballs throughout the 2022 season and that some of the more lively balls seem to show up a bit more often in the Bronx than anywhere else. Is this Judge's fault? No, not at all. But unfortunately, it makes MLB look bad and puts into question whether they're not manipulating only the ball, but also possibly manipulating the game by where certain baseballs show up. This is the danger in allowing MLB to own the production of the baseballs. They can manipulate the game if they want through the distribution of baseballs in the worst case, or in the best case, they don't manipulate the game, but everyone thinks they do because they own the production and distribution of the baseballs. And on that downer of a note, man, I have to get out of this rabbit hole. This last part sent me down the deep, dark rabbit hole of Dr. Meredith Will's studies on the ball showing the issues. But in thinking about time and what this is supposed to be about, I decided to cut it because there was just so much to it. Uh, I did save the info and maybe it will be its own rabbit hole someday. But for now, I'm going to just go ahead and end this thing right about a half hour, let you guys get to work or whatever you're doing. But hey, as always, thank you for hanging out with me as I talk about baseball or the baseball like I did in this episode. I really do appreciate everyone who's listened. And until next inning, keep rounding those bases. You're out. Hello, everybody. I'm back real quick. Hey, I just wanted to point out after I was editing this, I realized I never told you when the ball went from like a brown shoe leather to white. Well, there's a reason for that. I don't know. I've been looking. I'm seriously, I don't understand why that's not a thing. They were very happy to tell us that it was brown at one point, but for some reason they haven't told us when it was white. So I'm just not real sure. I... I feel like they would have wanted to start bleaching the ball very early. So sometime between the 1850s and 1876, when the major leagues started, had to have been that time because I don't think I've ever heard of a dark colored ball until I started looking into the lemon peel ball and things like that. But if you know, please let me know and I will edit this episode to change it. Once again, my crack staff of Michael Cotton did the editing, Michael Cotton did the writing, Michael Cotton did the uh, voice work, Michael Cotton did the research, but the one thing that Michael Cotton didn't do was my awesome theme song, and that was written and performed by Danny Rocket. So, here's Danny to take us out. Round the internet we go, where we end up no one knows, sit back and enjoy the show. Baseball rabbit hole, down the baseball rabbit hole.